Greetings from the Human Needs and Global Resources Program, also known as Hunger. I'm Jamie Huff. And I'm Nina Mantalaba. The Human Needs and Global Resources Program is an academic certificate program at Wheaton College that integrates multidisciplinary coursework, a six-month internship, and whole-person formation through experiential learning. Students live, work, worship, and serve with local communities worldwide, while accompanying host partner organizations that confront poverty, challenge inequity, transform conflict, pursue justice, and seek fullness of life. Welcome to our podcast, where we have the opportunity to reflect and learn together about our work of accompanying communities worldwide towards justice and fullness of life. This recording is part of Hunger's podcast series on Wheaton faculty and staff. The podcast will be organized around several questions that aims to highlight the work and hunger involvement across the departments and disciplines of the Wheaton community. We're so glad you're with us today. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Laura Yoder, Director and John Stott Chair of Human Needs and Global Resources, and Professor of Environmental Studies, who has been on the faculty of Wheaton College since 2013. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Nina. It is so good to be with you today. All right, Dr. Yoder, could you actually start off by telling us a little bit about you and your background? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania, um, a really beautiful natural area. And um, as I reflect on where I am now and how I got here, um, I think so much of it has to do with my early years growing up. Um, I grew up uh, going to a really small Christian school that was involved in a lot of international um, issues that were happening at the time. And, um, but really formative for me was that I grew up alongside um, several families of Vietnamese refugees that were hosted by our Moravian church. And they were my friends and playmates. And we spent holidays with um, people who had just arrived um, from Vietnam and were going through the process of transition into life in the US. Um, there were several uh, people who, the, the young kids who were my very good friends, we had a lot of meals with them. I was exposed to different foods than I would have had otherwise growing up. And um, there were just glimpses that I had of their life stories and how they came to leave their home country and also things that they suffered with. There were a number of health concerns that several of them faced. Some of them had polio and they um, received uh, treatment and special kinds of attention and care for that. Um, and I was always just aware of how they were navigating life in a new place and learning um, to become familiar with that. I think that just made me very curious of that. That was in the context of the church. And my mother was very closely involved with working with that group. Um, at the same time, uh, growing up with this international group where I was um, becoming aware of their history and a place that I had never visited, I was also extremely interested in science, especially plants and forests. And I like to spend all my time outside if I could. Um, and this, uh, I think these interests both grew and came together 
And um, that uh, was probably where I got started, even you know, under the age of 10, with some of those interests that I see as continuities until today. Wow, what a background. Um, I loved hearing about that community that inspired you and that place of Pennsylvania. Other than there, uh, what other contexts are important to your story? Uh, that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, so I grew up um, almost entirely in southeastern Pennsylvania. As a family, we really did not travel very much. And uh, so, you know, a lot of my awareness of other places came from other books um, and, uh, you know, stories that I heard. But when I was 16, I uh, was sort of, you know, finishing high school and I moved um, on my own to London. And that was a time that I was going there to um, do A-level courses, just something a little bit different for that time of life. And I went to a local school where I was, uh, I was told by the school administration that I was one of the only people with English as my first language, if American counted as English. Um, so uh, it was a very uh, richly diverse school. Nearly all of the students uh, were from South Asia or from the Middle East, from different countries. And uh, just very different um, backgrounds from my own. And it was tremendously rich learning environment for me to be in this school in central London um, for my senior year. And uh, the other thing that came during that season was that I was living with a British host family and they attended All Souls, uh, Langham Place. So the church where John Stott would still occasionally come and preach. And I um, came to know that church. I was involved with the uh, young people's group and the stu international students uh, meals after church on Sundays and really came through that to have this vision for the understanding of the church as a global church, uh, people from all over, many people who um, were from countries that I wasn't even quite sure where they were. Uh, but came to know about them and uh, get to know them over the time that we were there together and uh, became involved in All Souls. Of course, that was um, made some acquaintance with John Stott. And who knew that all these years later, that would be something still continuing. But that really um, that inspired me. Later, I, I moved back after college to um, Kew Gardens uh, as well for an internship after college and continued the time at All Souls. Um, on the environment and natural science side of things, I studied biology in college and did my own senior year of, of college in Ecuador, in Quito, but also um, with time in the Amazon and in Galapagos, so just ideal for a biology student. And through all of that time really deepened the interest that I had in working with um, smallholder farmers and people who were um, living and growing food in marginal conditions, which led me after college um, to a longstanding interaction with an organization called ECHO in Fort Myers, in North Fort Myers, Florida, that um, prepares people doing Christian work and agricultural improvement. So I was an intern there and on staff after college and have maintained that connection to this day. So those are some of the people and places and um, institutions, I think that were also really formative in my early years. 
Definitely. Wow. Thanks for, yeah, just outlining a bit of the beginning of your journey. Yeah. So how did you, I guess, get from there to hunger? What is your connection to hunger? I love, I love this uh, story. So I think I first heard about it when um, I was at Echo and one of my colleagues, uh, Peggy Kemna, who was later uh, Peggy Kemna Bosart, her brother had been a hunger alum. And she would often tell stories about um, his time in Papua New Guinea and uh, yeah, just became a familiar place that I would sometimes hear about. There were many Wheaton graduates who were interns with me at ECHO, um, others there as well. So I became aware just through these interns in Florida um, who were also in the agricultural program tropical agriculture, uh, about Wheaton and about the hunger program, because they talked about it a fair bit. But then when I was working overseas later, mostly in Southeast Asia, um, then I got to know a number of people who had, who were doing very creative work. They were with organizations or institutions um, working with a wide array of human needs and um, creatively addressing those within their um, areas of of work. So um, very many different disciplines, but working in projects and organizations and initiatives and just having relationships with churches and others um, who were um, intimately involved with addressing a range of difficult human needs all around Asia. And um, many of those uh, were, of course, organizations that were led by local people. And this was very impressive to me that um, the role of the uh, foreign academic or foreign counselor or foreign teacher was actually they were um, quite comfortably working often within local institutions. And that was not a model that I saw that often. So um, that caught my attention. So it was really uh, kind of the life testimonies of the alumni of the program that made me very curious about it. And um, when I uh, moved back from a longer decade plus in Southeast Asia, and I was teaching uh, for a while in Indiana, I was asked to come speak at the um, Hunger Symposium, which I did. And there uh, learned um, more about it, including that they were uh, seeking another um, successor at that time to be director of the program. So um, yeah, that was sort of the, the story of the connection. Wow, I love that story. Thank you for sharing it today. Um, I think it's just really cool to to hear your background um, as someone who's taught me for several years now and kind of cool to see how God led you here today. You know, what a great conversation with Dr. Yoder. I mean, I really appreciated how she recounted Uh, coming to know about the hunger program through people and organizations that are creatively engaged in addressing human needs from within their own areas of work. I know that for over the past eight years of working in the program myself, I too have been really inspired and challenged by the creative work that I've witnessed. Hmm. Yeah, personally, I was encouraged by the reminder that every scholar and professor started with just a curiosity to learn more. I think our next guest shares a really great example of this kind of creative work. We thought it would be great to speak with an alum of the program who worked in a part of the world that Dr. Yoder has called home. 
So we invited Hannah Appleyard to join us to talk about her experience as a hunger intern in Indonesia in 2018 with SIL International. Let's listen in now. My name is Hannah Appleyard and I went to Wheaton College, was in the Wheaton College Hunger Program. Um, my major was music with elective studies and third world studies. Um, so basically a music degree paired with the hunger program. Um, and I graduated in 2019. So I did my internship from May of 2018 to November of 2018. Um, and my internship was in Indonesia. I was kind of all over the country. Um, the internship was with SIL International, which is kind of one and the same as Wycliffe. I, SIL is um, the Indonesian, I guess, branch of that. Um, so Bible translation and um, that kind of organization, but I was specifically working with um, two uh, supervisors that were doing music, um, like local music workshops. Mm -hmm. And so we spent our time going into different villages, local villages throughout the country of Indonesia and um, discussing music and traditional, what traditional music sounds like, um, and then doing a songwriting workshop where the um, participants would come and they would brainstorm uh, music that would be important for their community and uh, put, um, wrote songs in their local languages and then put it to music and then we would record it for them um, and then put it all on a, an MP3 um, on a USB so that they could all take it home with them at the end of the workshop. Um, and then that was uh, pretty much, we did that a couple different times. I think I went to a total of four workshops throughout the, the six months. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the music that you guys recorded, remind me, was it um, worship music, hymns, local songs that had nothing to do with religious, spiritual life, a little bit of everything? What, what, are, the, what are the recordings entail? mostly worship music um, or Christian music that they could use. Um, all of the communities that we were in were Christian communities. Um, and so I know one of the villages specifically had a need for uh, like Sunday school songs. And so that they specifically focused on recording a, a couple of those. And, um, but generally Christian uh, worship music, I think maybe there are a couple that were just more local non-religious but okay. yeah and did the song performance like during the workshops the songs that you recorded did it involve any other non-vocal instruments or is it all just usually voice recordings or do they include instruments as well um a lot of voice um this kind of ties into just the overall um study but um, before the workshops, we would ask the local participants to bring local instruments. And generally that was not misinterpreted, but um, they just, they tended to bring guitars and ukuleles. So we had a lot of guitar and ukulele and um, at a couple of the workshops, you know, as the, as the days went on in the week, they would come up with more, they would bring more, you know, we had um, one with a couple flutes and some drums and at one workshop we had a, a very specific big bass instrument so a couple more indigenous instruments as well and a lot of guitar awesome and what did your work entail like what were you doing as the intern what, did, what <laughs> i'm sure you did a little bit of everything but what did that include 
Yeah, I they definitely started me off on doing more tech related things. So once we got the raw unedited footage, um, you know, sticking it into uh, I believe it was Audacity and, you know, tidying it up, making sure the balances was good because uh, they were all all of the workshops were in Indonesian. And so I was still learning, still learning Indonesian. And so once I got more fluent, then, um, you know, did more more other things but a lot of recording um yeah um and then the one the other one is the ta uh, mawaii panyomba repwe ala mm -hmm. and i actually have that one in an interview i had interviewed one of the um participants at the workshop who had been in the recording of this song who um i asked her specifically about the song because they had just recorded it and i it was one of those moments at a workshop where, um, you know, kind of it was a song that everybody was kind of talking about because it just it had seemed really inspired. And when they had finished it, they felt really excited about it. And I asked her, um, you know, why was this song so exciting? Um, and so this is from my interview. But she said, um, you know, we had created more songs that were popular, like yesterday's song was a very popular song. Everybody hears songs like that. But today's song, which is the one that was recorded, um, is a reminder to us that our sister used to do things like our sisters used to do things like this. Um, the one recorded today is closer to my heart because it's about my identity. Um, and I remember that that was just a really exciting moment at the workshop. Um, so it is that specific song that they had recorded. Very cool which is yeah in their local language and definitely in a, a more traditional style than what they had been doing before. Okay. I think it's got some call and response in it and, and stuff like that. What would you want the audience to feel when listening to this music for the first time? To feel? Um, I think that for, I mean, all of this is, is a different style of music than, you know, I mean, West Westerners, I guess, are accustomed to listening to. And that is the, that's the goal of the workshops, because we get a lot of different types of songs, and some of them end up sounding quite, you know, popular sounding, and some of them sound pretty different and, and unique. And um, I would say just these songs are a culmination of five often really difficult days where people um, are coming and they're brainstorming and they don't know how to make, you know, they don't know how to create songs that are in their traditional uh, music or they, they don't know how to brainstorm or they're struggling with what they want to say and having, you know, that it's five days of a lot of, um, a lot of work. And so when they do, finally, um, you know, get around to the recording of the songs. It's just a really, uh, usually a really great moment for them. So um, yeah, I, I just feeling the joy that, that, that comes with um, being able to create a song like that. Hmm. And usually what they've learned at the end of a workshop or what they've experienced. I think I just did. That's good. I mean, I, I mean, I knew some of what I knew a little bit about what you did, Hannah, but I didn't know that about that. <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything like I kind of think of uh, life experiences like these where there's intensive learning on so many different levels um, and challenges, uh, highs, lows, lamentable stuff, praiseworthy stuff. 
is there anything like three years out that you're like, okay, this is kind of stuck with me is, is, is significant, important for me. Um, I mean, it could be anything like what, what's, what remains a significant kind of learning or a significant um, effect on any number of things for you from that time. Yeah, I actually just finished a personal statement that I had to write for grad school and just kind of reflected back on my musical journey since now I'm interested in music therapy and just kind of um, going back through the musical, you know, high points in my life and kind of seeing how I've gotten to where I am. Um, And I was thinking back to being at Wheaton and being a, you know, studying Western classical music and just, um, you know, every once in a while, just wondering kind of what is the, (laughs) sounds bad, but what is the point of doing all of this super, super specific independent study on my instrument and just learning about Western classical music in general. Um, and just kind of being like, you know, what, what is the point of music, I guess. And so, um, you know, I feel like doing these workshops for, me was a was a really big eye-opening moment for one that um there's a ton of other music besides western classical music which is what i had been studying for years um and also just how important music is to culture um and how important um you know local traditional music can be to um one specific village um and just how i guess music ownership is important, like feeling that you, um, that your own specific music is important to you can help, you know, creating songs like this can literally help um, bring a community together or multiple communities of different languages, but still, you know, brainstorming and talking about these things. Um, And so just going on from that, at this point, I'm starting to, you know, I'm I'm still thinking about how music is important and impacting other people's lives. Um, Therapy is is a lot of, you know, using using music to, you know, work with people who maybe aren't able to communicate verbally or who are needing music in order to, um, you know, a lot of different things. But um, just how important music is to communicating what's important to you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And this was kind of the opening. This was kind of the first moment where I really got to become immersed in a different Hmm. culture that where I didn't really know their traditional music, but um, you know, just to have somebody invite you to, to join, you know, their traditional dance and to have them do it for you and be really excited about it is, is really cool. Yeah. It reminds me, I'm reading a book that, uh, if you can believe it, Raina, our oldest, is in her first year of college. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, So she just sent me a book that one of her faculty assigned her called um, Art and Fate, A Theology of Making. It's by an artist, Japanese-American artist. It's really good, by the way. Everyone should get it. But it reminds me, he talks about how important, you know, making, creating, right, is, is as an expression of one's obviously Imago Dei, but kind of an affirmation of who you are, kind of your, mm-hmm. an affirmation of your creative capacity to affect change or bring people together or celebrate or like these are all, and that it's less about sort of this um, seeing or understanding its importance, 
is not something you do abstractly, but it's something you do experientially, which is fundamentally about artistic endeavors, right, of any kind. You're, you kind of come to it like, wait a minute, this is the significance of this is apprehended in the doing of it, right, which is the music, right? And to hear you talk about how the, the, how the workshops affirmed people's culture, right, period, is mm -hmm. really, really, really cool. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, of course. What a great conversation with Hannah. Thanks, Hannah, for sharing with us about the significance of your hunger learning and about the creativity and songs of the people who hosted, welcomed, and taught you in Indonesia. Let's return now to our conversation with Dr. Yoder to hear more about the creative projects she is currently engaged in. What have been some of your most recent projects? Well, that's, uh, that's something that I um, enjoy a lot about the role that I have now is the chance to work with people who are doing creative work in so many different disciplines. And I think from my own background, I have a number of areas that I work in. I um, have always had that personal tendency perhaps to be involved in a range of things, uh, multiple things, um, and often interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work. So some of the areas uh, that I work in include um, just an array of topics thematically, um, often on land justice and on environment. So uh, what does land justice look like in post-conflict settings? Um, and what are the uh, environmental impacts of conflict, of state conflict and other forms of conflict? Uh, so that's one thematic area that I work on. I also have been involved with a number of projects related to mission and development and Mennonite missions and agricultural work uh, coming within that. So with some colleagues in New Zealand and Singapore and elsewhere. And a lot of my work has focused on uh, Southeast Asia and most recently, especially on um, Timor-Leste. So a country where I did my doctoral work and have continued engagement for yeah, 20 years now. Um, continuing to go back uh, to, to the place um, where I uh, have been working there and maintaining relationships and seeing that develop. But the most recent project that was unexpected but seemed to make sense when it came my way um, was this John Stott on Creation Care um, project. So that's one uh, that came my way. W would you like me to focus a little more on that? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, what was the, the story behind the specific project? Yes, well, this was one that was not something I was pursuing. And uh, as I was reflecting on this, I thought sometimes we need to say yes to projects for which we feel underqualified uh, and that come our way unexpectedly. And this is uh, one of those examples. So um, I learned in 2018 about an unfinished manuscript from uh, the very well-known um, British scientist, R.J. Sam Berry. Um, friends often refer to him as Sam. And he has been just incredibly active through his life in um, the UK and beyond with working with creation care and especially how that connects with his life as a scientist. He did uh, mouse genetics. That was one of the projects that he worked on and, and just, um, really working very closely on science and um, very integrally concerned throughout his entire life to work with others on how people who are working in science 
can be living out their Christian faith, but especially also in relation to creation care. So kind of a, a particular concern of his, and he was closely involved with a number of initiatives and organizations, including Arasha in the UK. So I, I learned that um, he had passed away in that uh, spring and in the summer, I learned that um, the manuscript was largely completed, but then not uh, taken through to publication. And um, how Sam Barry got involved in the work was that he was preaching a sermon in his home church on uh, creation care and drawing on some John Stott sources. And afterwards, someone asked him uh, how they could connect with some of Stott's writings on this. And he said, well, you know, he mentioned a few that he knew, but then that question stuck with him. And then he asked a few others, maybe we should compile this. So again, that came to him in perhaps an unexpected way. Um, but he had then um, passed away and left this. And I thought, as someone who works in creation care, I'm a professor of environmental studies and the John Stott chair, it seems timely for me to commit time to this. And so uh, I think it was 10 days later, I was actually in London uh, for Tier Fund and Tier Fund USA board meetings when um, I was able to meet Caroline Berry, Dr. Caroline Berry, Sam's widow. We met uh, in St. Pancras Railway Station and had coffee and she handed me the materials of, um, that he had prepared on a memory stick and some, and some other materials to carry forward as possible. We didn't know at that point whether it would be simply a summary of the bibliography or um, the full book or some journal article extracted from there. So um, yeah, that's how the book came to me. There was uh, much work that needed to be done with getting reprint permissions from the 55 um, distinct sources at that point. And we added additional ones. Um, but uh, yeah, so that project came uh, just at that time and then continued to be something that I was able to work through with several others uh, right through the beginning of the pandemic. And it uh, was published then um, in, I guess, last month in October of 2021. So it took a while, but um, yeah, it's been a, a project that has been incredibly rich in learning for me. I've learned so much in working with these materials. Um, and so many people were surprised when that started because it was an area that people knew that Stott had a lot of concern for. But I think uh, until this compilation was done, nobody really had a very well-rounded picture for the entire scope of his interest and concern writing and preaching on this topic. What a journey of that book's creation. Um, is there any element of this project that you want to highlight for the audience? Yeah, so I think um, there are a few areas that really stand out to me about the project and uh, the ways people that would connect with it. So I think um, one audience for this uh, learning about this project would be those who know John Stott's work quite well. Those who have read many of his books or even some of his books and caught a vision for um, the way that he sees the role of the church in the world and uh, have been following his Bible studies perhaps, but didn't know that he had the concern on this area of creation care. 
and seeing how that developed through his own life. Um, that for me was just one of the most fascinating pieces that he really had concern and interest from a young child in the outdoors. And then working in the church, um, this developed over time. And it was really when he was in middle age that this um, came to the fore for him as something that uh, became for him a, an incredibly strong priority, such that in his final book, his deliberately final book, The Radical Disciple, he named creation care as one of the most important neglected aspects of Christian calling. Uh, so one of the things that Christian disciples um, should be doing and that we neglect, and he considered this a failure of obedience. So I think that would be one area. Another would be um, just those who are interested in environmental restoration and creation care and maybe haven't yet uh, been able to develop grounding on a biblical basis for this and following Stott's own journey on this and um, some of the creative ways he comes at this as a preacher and a theologian uh, would be um, helpful to sort of journey with him on that. And then maybe one other thing I'd like to highlight was something that occurred to me through the book, which was actually not in the original manuscript, but connecting with other of Stott's writings was the question of simple lifestyle. So um, I think one of the things that caught my attention was that uh, as a scientist who originally compiled this work, Sam Barry focused much more on the science side of things and has um, some really fascinating commentary on that in, in this book. And as I was reading some of Stott's writings, um, it also caught my attention that his um, concerns very early on for how creation care connected with simple lifestyle uh, could be something worth exploring. So I also noticed that there was another chapter in The Radical Disciple, in Stott's deliberately final book, that was on simplicity. And in that book, he points directly to the 1980 consultation on simple lifestyle that was held an international consultation that had a lot of lead up to it. It was very closely related uh, to the development of the Lausanne Covenant and its you know, global reach and expansion. And um, the first section in that, which Stott co-chaired with Ron Sider is creation. And the second is stewardship. So um, I know that uh, for John Stott, the question of simple lifestyle is something that uh, really came about, um, again, sort of mid-life for him, but he connected that with creation care and wrote about that without mincing words uh, in very forthright ways, as we would often see. So I think that um, connecting the way that we can see his own life testimony, um, living uh, life of um, integrity, where he um, was honest about how uh, this all connects in the life of a, of a, of a disciple. Um, and also that it um, was something that should be uh, expanded for, for all, all disciples and those who are seeking to follow Jesus. Um, and those are not easy words 
and I would commend the Radical Disciple book to people um, to see that or also to see online the Lassonde's um, paper on that, on the International um, Consultation of Her Simple Lifestyle. So those are available and challenging words, but I think well worth um, considering. So those are some highlights, Nina. Wow, what, what challenges truly um, proposed there? Um, you mentioned that some of these themes and challenges um, that are prominent in this book, how would you hope people respond to this piece? Well, that's, uh, yeah, that, I think it does call for response <laughs> for one. Uh, this for me has not been a project uh, of just intellectual engagement of one to, um, you know, to, to work on and then set aside, but I will be carrying the questions and the challenges that, uh, that Stott poses in his writing with me. I think some of the ways that um, I would hope people would respond to the piece would be sharing it with others and having frank and honest conversations about how difficult it is to, um, to uh, grapple with things in our society that drive us toward uh, comfort or pursuit of, of comfort. Um, in all areas, and um, what does that mean? What are what are the ways that we, as members of um, of churches and uh, small groups and families and neighborhoods, can um, spur each other on to um, look at ways of how we live into this area as disciples? So, what are ways that are um, local economic practices can be um, revised or, or reformed. What are ways that we might share more with others? Sharing of goods and sharing of space, um, sharing of um, transportation and uh, seeking to organize our lives and our communities in ways that do respond to um, this call to live more simply because we are following Jesus. Um, and having that be something that we work with. I know just a number of people who have um, established something like accountability groups with people that gather um, periodically around their fossil fuel use who have been doing this for decades. And they impose a kind of a, a voluntary tax on themselves and um, then you know pool that money for different uh, purposes that they do. Or those who... Um, directly engage with um, community civic action projects around uh, water cleanup or around agricultural production for communities um, in need in their own local areas. Um, so this can happen on local scales and global scales. But I think one of the important things about responding is just to do things with others and to start to have those conversations um, and to encourage and inspire each other um, toward beginning to work on this. If this is an area that, uh, this is an area that I think a lot of people feel maybe guilt or awkwardness and are um, unwilling to work with. And I think maybe opening some space for that is something that Stott did uh, with his writing and something that I think, um, yeah, that the readers uh, of that book would be able to do. Along with that, what recommendations would you give to someone wanting to learn more about John Stott on creation care and similar themes? 
Well, there's uh, so many good um, books uh, to read, but other materials as well. Just some of the people that I would point you toward. Uh, Dave Bookless has a number of books and um, uh, there's, he's writing from a UK context with a Russia and a theological context and practical as well. And that would be um, just, I think those are some of my favorites. Also Ruth Valerio's writing. Ruth Valerio has worked with Arasha and also with, now with Tear Fund. And uh, her books are very practical and engaging. Um, Sandy Richter, who is a previous colleague from Wheaton, who's now at Westmont and has done a series of um, books, but also video series that can work with church groups. Um, Wheaton's own uh, theology professor, Doug Moo has written a book with Jonathan Moo um, called uh, Creation Care, A Biblical Theology of the Natural World. That's also just very accessible, but um, deep and grounding. And I would highly commend that to people. Um, for areas to do with food, which is an area that a lot of people have interest in, um, works of Norman Wiersba on um, Sabbath keeping and on theology of eating, those would be some that I think uh, would be places to start that sort of have intersections of theology and um, practical living out of uh, Christian simple living. Thank you for sharing a bit of your story and journey with us and also introducing John Stott on creation care. Uh, the final question I have for you today is what have you learned in the process of your time with hunger? Well, Nina, that is, uh, so we have, what, uh, 20 years to answer that question, I think. Um, but what have I learned in the, in the process of my time with this program? I think, um, well, the, the work that we do with students and with host partners all around the world is very inspiring and challenging. Um, to me. And as I get to know the work that the um, students are doing and the host organizations in all kinds of situations where they are, um, that is something that I look forward to learning new things every single day uh, since I've been here now starting year nine. Um, but one of the things I think uh, that I hope to see um, increasingly uh, through the program is also how the, um, the themes of creation care and environmental restoration can be woven throughout our understanding of human need. And certainly with um, the reality of climate change becoming ever more tangibly uh, visible for people who are already in situations of um, uh, environmentally fragile circumstances where they live and make their living. I think that would be um, a hope that we would have. But I think another thing would just be um, combining John Stott and learning from working with the Hunger Program is the critical importance of this lived out life testimony uh, in all dimensions. And this is not um, a matter for pride, but one for humility. So how um, can we learn from others around us and um, gather together to um, share the hope that we have in ways that are life-giving uh, in all dimensions, um, including care, 
for God's created world and the people and the places and um, the soil and the creatures uh, who, who live here. So I think that uh, one of the things that Stott would often say is that our lives are our message. And uh, if we bear that in mind, how does that uh, spur us on to live into new ways um, and to ask questions in a constant way that will be opening us to um, learning and living differently. So yeah, those are some of the, some of the things <laughs> and so much more can be said there, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks y'all for tuning in. Uh, we'd like to say thank you again to Hannah Appleyard for the opportunity to learn from her and for the music credits that she shared with us. Please join us next time as we continue learning to accompany communities worldwide toward justice and fullness of life. Allah.